Thanks for listening to the podcast from Gary Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Wilson, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Good to see all of you here this morning. We're going through the book of Habakkuk together in a series we've entitled God Questions. We're going verse by verse through the book, and we're in part three today. We're in the middle of chapter two, and it's a little book. It's only three chapters long, but it's a little book, but it asks really big questions. Hard questions, the kind of questions that we often struggle with as we think about God. And uh, we've, we've already co- covered some of the questions that Habakkuk has found difficult. And, and a couple of weeks ago, as we began, he was, he was praying, how long, Lord? How long before you answer me? It just seems like you're not even listening. How long do I have to keep crying out? How long, Lord? You ever cried that, Lord? Like, you're, like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? We're, you know, how, are, how long, Lord? And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago in chapter one. And then last week, why, Lord? Okay, I prayed this, but you answered that. That wasn't what I wanted. Why? Why, Lord? That, that, that's a hard kind of conversation. Now, this week, we're asking this question. Habakkuk is asking this question. Where are you, Lord? Where are you? I, I, get, I get that you're going to do this. So you've answered my prayer opposite from what I thought. Okay. But how does this fit into who you are? And, and how do I make sense of this? Where are you, Lord? You ever been in that kind of a place where God seems absent? Like you can't, like by faith you believe in him, but you can't see how he's working at this point in your life. It just seems like you're on your own. You ever been there? That's how Habakkuk feels. Um, Maybe you've been like this where you look at the news, and maybe we shouldn't even look at the news, but when we look at the news, we go, wow, there's so much evil in the world. There's so much trouble. There's so much pain. Where are you, Lord? Where are you in this? Do you see the violence in Israel and in Ukraine and, and not just in those lands, but in our own nation? The shootings, the murders, the rape, the, 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 the theft, the, the division. How, how could you let this keep going on, Lord? How long will you let this? Where are you? And the lack of shame, the immorality, and the way our nation and other nations of the world, instead of calling it wrong, they call it right, and then they call what is right wrong, and, and then there's no shame for it. In fact, they celebrate their sin. What, where are you, Lord? You ever ask that question? Or maybe you're not so concerned with these kind of cosmic things, these world things. Uh, Maybe it's more like in your own personal life. Lord, I don't understand what what you're doing in my life right now. Where are you, Lord? I guess the real question is for the believer, those that trust in Jesus, that we're followers. How do we stay faithful when God seems absent? How can we be encouraged in our faith when it seems like, I don't see, God, I, I trust you, I believe in you, but I don't see what you're doing right now. It's not making sense to me. I don't understand. And this is why the key verse in Habakkuk, and we covered it last week, but the key verse is in Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Even when life doesn't make sense, even when God seems distant, the righteous keep believing. And this leads us to something which is really what the book of Habakkuk is. The book of Habakkuk is, is a three-chapter long lament. A lament. And for the believer, Mark Vrogop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says lament is a pathway to praise when life gets hard. In other words, uh, for the believer, for the Christian, the, the prayer of lament says, Lord, I have questions. Lord, I have complaints that I don't understand, yet I believe. We, we cry them out to the Lord. We don't, we don't just internalize them. We don't just complain about them to other people. We lift them up in prayer. We go, Lord, where are you? I... And we are in good company when we do this because that's how Habakkuk, the prophet, prayed. That's how David prays in a third of the Psalms. Lord, but always at the end, as he gets to the end, he goes, I praise you anyway. This is the prayer of lament. Even when life doesn't make sense, even when God seems far away, we can cry out to a holy God and he hears us. It might not be as soon as we want. It might not be in the way we want, but we can know this. He's a good God and he causes all things to come together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. In the book of Habakkuk, when the prophet struggled with understanding how a holy God could use an evil empire like the Babylonians to judge Israel, when he struggled with that, God answered by declaring five woes of judgment on Babylon. And within these five woes, God encouraged Habakkuk's faith to see that God's got a plan. Even though it doesn't, it doesn't look like it's working out right now, he has a plan, and he's at work on his plan, even, even when we might not see the evidence in the very moment. And we can be encouraged in our faith by understanding that God's already at work. We can, we can be encouraged, and as we look at the text today, I think we'll see three ways that will encourage our faith that God is already at work even when life doesn't make sense. Let's look at the text we're picking up on verse 6. We, we left off at verse 5 of chapter 2 last week. We'll start at verse 6. And I would remind you that the him uh, here uh, that keeps referring to he and him is speaking about Babylon. And so as we look at verse 6, shall not these, that's the nations that Babylon has overthrown, take up their taunt against him. I'll read it like this and then we'll, we'll start reading. Shall not all the nations that you've overthrown, take up their taunt against Babylon with scoffing and riddles for Babylon. And then I'll read it as it's written from there on. And say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's word. We're looking today for encouragement from God's Word, how we can be encouraged in our faith and looking for three ways as we read this passage. Now, this is not an easy reading, is it? It's a difficult reading. I had asked my small group earlier this week, our our community group on Wednesday night, I said, pray for me. I'm studying uh, the latter part of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, and I'm looking, as I always do, for encouragement for myself first, but then encouragement for you. My desire is to bring you a word Uh, of encouragement in your faith. If you're here and you're not a believer, I I desire to bring a word from the Lord that would move you to follow Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, to encourage you to keep on keeping on. But as I read this passage, I have to say on on first reading, I knew what it was about, but I was looking for, okay, where's the encouragement? Five woes. Doesn't sound very encouraging. But then as my practice is, I look for where, where do we see something about the Lord? And as you look through there, you'll see the name of the Lord in there a few places. And those are the places I'll always dig in more deeply because the book is primarily a book about God. And he's revealing himself to us. And so I I would say we're going to cover these five woes for our understanding so we can understand them. But we're going to more deeply look for an encouragement from the person of the Lord so that we know him better. But let's look at this. First of all, I would say let's unpack these five woes quickly so we have time to dig in to what we've uh, heard from the Lord about himself. Uh, Five woes. Uh, The word woe, we don't use that a lot in modern English. Maybe maybe you've said, woe is me. You know, like, maybe you've said, like, and if you say that, you usually mean that you're discouraged or you're sorrowful, uh, you're down about something. So it's an expression of lament. The word woe is an expression of lament. But when the Lord says it towards an evil nation like Babylon, it's, it's an expression of judgment, of coming judgment, of looming judgment. It's a declaration of judgment. Dr. John MacArthur says, when God utters woe against evil men, he sets divine judgment in motion. Now, to remember the time period here, um, Habakkuk has been told the Babylonians are coming, but they haven't come yet. And they're coming to judge Israel for its sin. And Habakkuk is troubled by this because he goes, they're more, they're more sinful than we are. Why would you bring them? But now he's got the answer from God about that. I'm bringing them. But now God is going to say, because he'd gone on and asked, well, how long are they going to camp out here? And, and now God's answering, I've already declared woe over them. 
Their, their time will be limited. I've already, and he gives him five woes of judgment on Babylon. And, and I want to cover these quickly because I want to dig into what we can find out about what the Lord is saying to us for our encouragement. But just to understand, these five woes, as I talk about them, this is what happens to every human government, every worldly government eventually. No matter how well it starts off because of the sinfulness of man, we always slide into Babylon. Because Babylon is really in the story, it's a real place, it's a real people, but it's also symbolic of the world's kind of government. No matter what government it is, including our government, human sin causes it, causes it to slide towards this kind of five woes. Well, let me cover them. The first is in verses 6 through 8, and he says, Woe to you because of your extortion, your unjust economics, your theft, You've plundered others, and my judgment on you now is they will plunder you. You've built a nation based on stealing from other peoples, and now your judgment is they're going to plunder you right back. And you took it by the blood of man, verse 8. You did it by violence and murder. And not only that, you did violence to the earth, which is an unusual thing to see, but, but the Babylonians were known for being like the like a plague of locusts coming through a nation. They would leave behind them a swath uh, where they burned everything down and the crops, they would salt the crops so that the next generation couldn't even plant their crops. As they're passing through, they would cut down the forest and, and they would pull down the houses and take the stones and the timber out of them and drag them off and take those back to Babylon. They were just known for, for just being a plague on the earth even. And so he says this, woe to you, because you've spoiled others, you've taken them for spoil, now you'll be plundered by the very ones that have done this to you, woe to you. Now you have to understand that, that during this time period that Babylon was the most powerful nation in the known world, it was the most wealthy nation, but by plunder, it became wealthy by stealing from others. If you look at a map very quickly here, we can see that the Babylonian Empire at its peak covered the whole of uh, what's called the Fertile Crescent. So they, they started at the Persian Gulf. There's a lot of history going on at the Persian Gulf right now in the news, isn't there? A lot going on with American ships in the Persian Gulf. But they started at the Persian Gulf. This was the land of Ur that a Abraham was called out of. Here's the city of Babylon built right on the Euphrates River. In fact, they had built a dam, so they channeled the river through their city, so they always had plenty of water. They're built between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And then they had conquered Nineveh and all of all of Assyria, they had conquered Lebanon, all the way up into Turkey. They conquered all of of, of, of Jordan and of Israel all the way down into Egypt. And so that's the size. It's, it was a great empire, a very wealthy empire. And if you look at the next map, it was known for being one of the seven wonders of the known world during that time, the hanging gardens of Babylon, where they had brought the waters in from the Euphrates River and through their technological advances had found ways to pipe the water up into these hanging gardens. And so it was listed as one of the ancient wonders of the uh, seven wonders of the world. They were wealthy beyond compare. It would be hard to hear that God was saying to them, I'm going to take everything away from them. And indeed, the, this, this country of Babylon that seemed like a world power that no one could conquer, so wealthy, uh, it was one of the shortest-lived 
uh, countries during that time, nations during that time. They were like a flash in the pan. God said, woe to you. You plundered others, they will plunder you. That's the first woe. Now here's the second one. It's in verses 9 through 11. He says, woe to you because of your greed and your arrogance. You were greedy and you were arrogant. He says, because of this, your house will fall. Woe to you. You built your house on this. You've built your, you, you, you think you've got this great fortress. You think you've got this great city like an eagle's nest. Like you've elevated yourself to such arrogance that you have this impregnable city. And, and here's an artist's rendering of what the city may have looked like. Uh, you can see this, this city in the back. You can see this ziggurat. Over here you can see uh, the hanging gardens. And here prominently is what's called the Ishtar Gate. And this is based on people who had seen this city. It was still standing, much of it was still standing when Alexander the Great came through. He actually thought about he was going to make that his, his capital city. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away uh, before he was able to do that. If you look at the city today, though, the Lord says, you think you built this city? You think, I'm going to wipe it out. And so I think this, this photo was actually taken by one of our American soldiers during the war in Iraq. That's what, it, that's what Babylon looks like today. And no one has ever lived there since then. God, God said, woe to you. you. You built your city on arrogance and greed. And you think your, your walls are impregnable? You, you think that? It's all going to come to nothing. In fact, it was well known that, the, that it had three walls. It had an outer wall, a, a, a middle wall, and then an inner wall. And it's like an eagle's nest. There's nobody going to get here. We've built, we've built our, the outer wall was 85 feet thick. You could, you could drive two teams of chariots, four-horse chariots, and they could pass each other on the top of the wall all the way around the circumference of the city. They, they, had, they had piped uh, the Euphrates River so it ran under the wall and, and so that there was no way to get in except through the, the gate. It was an impregnable city, but God says, I'm bringing it down. In fact, today, if you go to a museum in Berlin, a, a German archaeologist right before World War I actually went to the city of Babylon. And this is why we know what the Ishtar Gate looks like, because he had it taken apart stone by stone and numbered, and they carried it to uh, Berlin and rebuilt it. And you can go today and see part of it. It's not all of it, because it would have been way up here, but it's the front part of the Ishtar Gate in Babylon, and you can still see the wealth and the beauty of the former city, which is no more. God said, woe to you. And long before, long before it had fallen, the judgment of God was already in motion. Woe to you. Number three, here's the third uh, woe. It's in verses 12 through 14. Bloodshed, iniquity, and slavery. Woe to you because of the way you've shed blood. Woe to you because of your iniquity and morality. Woe to you because you've enslaved other people to build these cities, and it will all come down. Do you see, uh, woe to you who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. But behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts? See, that's the first time we see a reference to the Lord in these woes in verse 13. He goes, that people labor merely for fire. In other words, they labor for stuff that's going to burn up. They're just laboring for things that aren't going to last. They're spending their life. And nations weary themselves for nothing. Isn't judgment from the Lord that says, you built all this and you thought it was 
I'm telling you what, woe to that which you've thought was going to last, these worldly things. Woe to you. They will not last. And then I think the key verse, and I'll talk about this more because this is where I want to get to. I want to get to verse 14. I want to get through these woes so I can really unpack verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water, waters cover the sea. Right here, right here in the midst of these five woes, God's telling Habakkuk and he's telling us something about the, the, the vast idea that he has, the plan he has, the overarching plan that he built us, he created us to reflect his glory, but because of sin we have fallen. But his whole purpose now is to bring his glory back to, to us so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth. And so even, even though Babylon looks glorious, it's got one of the seven wonders of, of the ancient world, even though their glory will be gone and the glory of God will keep going. There it is right in verse 14. We're going to talk more about that. This is the first aspect of this verse because I think verse 14 really had an immediate fulfillment that, the, that Babylon would fall and it would give God glory when it fell because he, he predicted that it would fall and he said it would fall. But then there's an ongoing, because when Jesus comes, and we're going to talk about this some more in just a little bit, when Jesus comes a mere uh, four or five hundred years later, the glory of the knowledge of the, of the Lord's glory is expounded and expanded because the glory of the Lord appears in the person of Jesus. And so there's this ongoing, and then there's an ultimate when Jesus comes again, and truly, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. And so he's unpacking something here, tremendous and, and wonderful, uh, this, this idea that eventually, this singular and important verse, but it's first applied to Babylon, Babylon will fall. It, it, it will fall. And so that's verses 12 through 14. Verses 15 through 17 are the fourth woe. Woe to you because of your exploitation of others, of alcohol abuse, sexual immorality, You've shamed others. You've, you've captured peoples and you've stripped them naked and you've made them drink the, the, the drink and the, and the wine of, of orgy and of, of false idols and, and you've looked upon their shame. And so, so pornography is not a new thing and, 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 and uh, prostitution and all the things that went with you. You shamed these peoples. You captured them and brought them in and looked upon them. And, and what I'm going to do, you made them drink the cup of shame. And now the Lord says, I'm, I've got a cup and you're going to drink it and it's your shame. Do you see that? Woe to him who makes his, his neighbor drink, verse 15. You, and then he goes on and he says in verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. You made others, you filled others with shame. I'm going to make you drink the cup of shame. I think this cup is the cup of judgment. We hear the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane say, Lord, is there any way this cup can pass from me, the cup of judgment? Is there any way I cannot go, is there any way to save these people without going to the cross and taking the, your woe, your judgment, on my shoulders, is there another way? And the father tells him no. And, and the son says, well, then not my will, but yours be done. Is there any way for me not to drink this cup? But the Babylon had to drink this cup. The cup of their own shame had to be. And Jesus, who didn't have to drink the cup, 
did willingly drink the cup of my shame and your shame, my sin and your sin. He drank, he drank it to the bottom. He drank it to the dregs so that we don't have to. This woe is already in motion. It's already on the world system because Babylon is emblematic of the world's government, the world's religion, the world's economy. And we are caught up in this wrong worldly kingdom without Jesus. But when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we recognize he drunk, he's already drank to the bottom the dregs of the cup of God's judgment. He's already, he's already taken in the five woes in his own body, so we don't have to. And that's the fourth woe. And, and take note of some of the details. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Now, what was Lebanon known for? It was known for the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars. Remember how David had arranged to get cedars to build his palaces and how Solomon arranged with the king of Lebanon and, and they actually cut down cedar and they, and they, they built rafts and brought it down the, the Mediterranean Sea and brought it ashore and helped him build the temple. God's temple in Jerusalem. That's what Lebanon was known for. But it appears that as the Babylonians came through, they just cut down. They just went through and cut down the, the, the cedars of Lebanon. If you look at a flag of, of the nation of Lebanon today, prominent at the center of its flag is a cedar tree. These were not the cedar trees that you think of around here in North Carolina. These are huge trees, almost redwood-like in size. Unbelievable. But you'd come through and you'd cut everything down and, and, and even kill the, the, the beast that lived in the forest and even did violence to the earth. You came through like locusts. Woe to you. And then the fifth woe is 18 through 20. And it's woe to you because of your false religion. It's woe to you because of your idolatry. You've made idols, verse 18. You've made them out of wood and metal. And you're the maker. You're the creator. And, then you, and they can't even talk to you. Uh, but you say to them, awake, arise, teach me. And you made the thing. And I'm the creator who made you, and you don't worship me. And verse 20, and I live in the holy temple in heaven, and you're worshiping these things that you made with your own hands. Woe to you, Babylon. And woe to you peoples who are citizens of this worldly kingdom. This is what he says. You see, judgment's already in motion. It hadn't come yet. This is 70-some this is years before it falls on Babylon, but it's already been declared. Now, may I say to you that woe has already been declared over us. God's judgment is already in motion over us apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus. It says in Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. There's nothing hidden from God. He sees everything we do. Even our motives are revealed to God. And God's judgment on sin is already at work. It's called death. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Why is there death? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain in this world? Because of sin. And God's judgment is already upon sin. And so God's judgment is already upon us apart from Jesus. And in 539 B.C., less than a century after, after God declared the five woes, 
the city of Babylon, the land of Babylon is overthrown. And miraculously, even as Jeremiah the prophet predicted, they didn't even have to break down the walls. They went under the walls by putting a dam upstream on the Euphrates and lowered the level of the water and walked under. And Cyrus overcame King Belshazzar as he was drinking wine from the golden goblets that his father had stolen from the Jerusalem temple. This is the storyline that God tells us. It's the meta-narrative of history declared in the scriptures. It begins with creation, right? It begins with, with creation, that God made a perfect world, and he said everything's good. It's all good. But then because of man's sin, we, we experienced the fall, and so now we're part of this Babylonian kingdom. And we see Babel in Genesis. We see that we tried to build our own way to God, and it's called the Tower of Babel. And God had to interrupt that and cause dissension in, in different languages, so he stopped it. And so during this season of fall, he draws out a people. He actually pulls Abraham out of the ancient land of Chaldea, out of the land of Ur, just, just north of the, of the Persian Gulf. And he pulls him out to a land of Canaan, and he says, I want you to begin the, the process of being my people. I'm calling you a special people. Why did he do that? Was it because Abraham was better than anybody else? No. It's because he was preparing a people to bring the Messiah as our Redeemer. And so he's, he's beginning this process. And so verse 14 is pointing to what God's trying to do. He's bringing the knowledge of his glory back to his creation, which was lost because of the fall. And so verse 14 says, know this, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. And so Babylon must fall in order for that to happen. And then it prepares the way for Christ to come. And Christ has come. And then finally there's a day coming, a future day, when the, glory of the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the, the earth. And that's the time of restoration when Jesus comes again. And his glory will cover uh, the earth, earth as the waters cover the sea. And so this is the storyline of the Bible. Do you know this Jesus? The woe is already upon us, and Jesus has taken it for us if we believe in him, it, which leads us to the second way that we can be encouraged, understanding that God's redemption is available now. Understand, and we understand that God's judgment is already in motion. That's why there's sin and suffering and death. That's why there's these things in the world today, it's because of our sin and his judgment is already upon it. But there's redemption and it's available right now. As we look at this verse 14 again, we look at what God wants to do whenever, whenever we look at this verse, I was like, this verse is familiar. I've seen this verse somewhere else. And indeed, if you really look into this, Habakkuk is hearing from the Lord, but he's also hearing something that God had told another prophet years before, and that was the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, he writes, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I was like, ooh, ooh, this is a key. This is important because Isaiah chapter 11 is well known as a messianic prophecy. A messianic prophecy is where an Old Testament prophet tells us some details about the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. 
And so that verse 14 then is part of that messianic prophecy. It's not just about Babylon falling. It was about that, but not just that. It's also about this one Jesus. In fact, if you start reading Isaiah chapter 11, uh, it says some, I'll give you a few verses from chapter 11. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. This is a metaphor saying this Messiah will come from David's line, okay? Yes, a new branch, which is capitalized, you'll notice here, because it points to the Messiah, Jesus, bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. In that day, verse 10, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. What happened when Jesus came? What happened? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord was present on earth because we see that Jesus is the glory of God. No one has ever seen God, John writes in in his first chapter, but the only begotten, he has made him known. When we see him, we see the glory of God. And here he is. He comes and he he appoints 12 disciples and they begin to spread over the known world at this time because God had demolished Babylon. And as Daniel pointed out uh, in his book, soon as Babylon falls, the Persians take over. And then soon as the Persians fall, here come the Greeks. And then the Greeks fall to the Romans. And now the Romans build the Roman roads and they set out Roman law and they make it possible for the, the knowledge of the glory of God to be carried all over the known world. The Greeks brought the Greek language, the Romans brought the Roman roads, and it made it possible. Here's verse 14 pointing to us right now. I'm going to do this. I know you're discouraged, Habakkuk. I know you don't understand, but the Messiah is coming, and he's going to make the knowledge of the glory of the Lord spread as the waters cover the sea. Not completely, but we see it splash ashore in the coming of Jesus. We see it in this. You see, redemption is available to us right now. The woe is already upon us, the woe of God's judgment, but redemption is already available. Second Corinthians says this, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's available right now. Right now, you can come out from under the woe of God's judgment, which is on sin. And so those five woes have been taken away. And all that's left is the glory of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the sonship of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. When God's people returned out of exile to Babylon and returned to, to Jerusalem, they no longer struggled with the Canaan worship they once had. They'd been broken in Babylon from, from their uh, idolatry. They set up the synagogue system, and, and the place was prepared for the Messiah to appear at the perfect appointed time. Understanding this helps us be encouraged that God's judgment's already in motion, but so is his redemption. He's at work. He's at work to save. And then finally, we can be encouraged in our faith as we read these verses from Habakkuk, understanding that God's restoration is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. His restoration is coming soon. Verse 14 reveals God's ultimate plan. God knew his glory. Adam knew his glory. But sin caused his glory to be hidden, and and the glory that was supposed to be reflected in us was diminished. And now the redeemed of God, 
That's us that believe in Jesus. We are at this very moment. As I'm preaching, I'm spreading the knowledge of the glory of God. As you're taking it in and as you go out to your neighborhoods and your workplaces and wherever you go, you're declaring the knowledge of the glory of God as we're commanded by our Savior to make disciples of all nations. Declaring, right? The glory of God. The gospel is the glory of God declared that Jesus saves and we're no longer under judgment. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because all the woe fell on him. For those that are in him were found safe in the ark of God. The rain fell, but Noah and his family were found safe. And the rain of God's judgment fell on the cross, and those who are in Christ Jesus were free from condemnation. This is what's been revealed to us. Remember what he told Habakkuk earlier in chapter 2? Still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. There's an appointed time coming. There's a day of Christ's return coming. The arc of history has already passed through. Already passed through, if you look at it. Just, just think about it. It's already passed through this, the, these three seasons. There's only one season left. It's the season of restoration. He's coming again. He's coming again. And when he does, his glory, the knowledge of his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. I have two passages I want us to consider. One is to go back to Isaiah 11 and read the part of it I didn't read earlier that points to the time of Christ's second coming, which also refers to verse 18, or excuse me, verse 14 in Habakkuk. Let me read it to you quickly. This is speaking of the Messiah. He will give justice. Christ will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. There's that verse again. There's that verse again. You see, when you read the Isaiah prophecy in chapter 11, it describes both of his comings his first and the one to come. In verse 14 of Habakkuk, which is also verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 11, points to Jesus. This is a messianic prophecy. And Babylon, as I've said before, is emblematic of the world's government. How do I know this? Because we see it in the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. We see it in reality in history. here in the book of Habakkuk, that it's an actual place, but then we see it in the book of Revelation, don't we? Let's see if you think that any of this sounds familiar to you as I read a little bit about the world religion, the world government, the world economy in the last days, found in Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven 
He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Does that sound familiar to you? These woes? Sounds like Habakkuk. At the end, Babylon will rise. It's the false, it's the false government. It's the false religion. It's the, it's the world system. And it will rise under the beast and under the Antichrist. And it will rise. And God has already said... In his word, I've already judged it. It will fall. Woe to the world. And woe to every person who decides to remain a citizen of Babylon. But for everyone who comes to Jesus, you'll be part of that, of that great company of people who make known the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Oh, this is what God did. Habakkuk was crying out, and God pulled back the veil. And he said, don't worry, Habakkuk. Look what I'm doing. I'm already at work. He's already at work in your life. I know you're afraid. I know you're scared. I know you're troubled. I know you have questions. Cry out to the Lord. He's already at work. He's already at work. He's bringing all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Jesus took these woes. Thank you that he took my punishment. He took our punishment so that we could receive his eternal life. He took my death. He took my sin. He took my separation from you so that I could have eternal life, so that I could have his righteousness, so I could have his relationship and be adopted into your family. Oh, what amazing love this is. That's your plan, Lord, that your glory would cover the earth. That we would be mirrors of your glory, that we would be marked by it. And so, Lord, I pray first for that person that's here today, and you've never given your life to Jesus. Your, your life is still under the judgment of sin. You're still under the woe of sin. Would you come out today and say, Lord, forgive me. I accept what Jesus did on the cross, that he paid for my sin. I believe he died for me. I believe that you raised him from the grave and that he lives today. Come and live in me by your spirit, Lord Jesus. Come and live in me today. Forgive me of my sin. Adopt me into your family. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I follow you now with all my life and all my heart. If you're praying that prayer of faith, believing he'll save you. 
Others are here today and, and you've done that. You've received Jesus and you know him as your Lord and Savior, but you're going through something right now. You're going through a difficult time. Know this, even when God seems distant, even when you don't know what he's doing, he's already at work. Just say right now, Lord, I don't see it right now, but I know you love me and I trust you and I will follow you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.